It was a typical late summer Tuesday in September. I was a fifth grader. I was sitting in Mrs. Goschel's history class. We were continuing our discussion on the French and Indian War that we had started the day before. It was, you know, after you get used to a few weeks of school, this kind of just seems like this mundane thing until, until a knock interrupts our lesson. Mrs. Goschel goes and opens the door, and it's our principal, Mr. Drake, and he, he pulls Mrs. Goschel out of the room, and she shuts the door behind, behind, she shuts the door behind her. She was gone for a few minutes, and fifth graders do what they do when teachers are out of the room. Boys partake in shenanigans, and girls, they whisper among themselves. But then after a few minutes, Mrs. Goschel came back into the room with a look I didn't really understand as a fifth grader. She stood silently in front of the room, as if to try to compose herself and find the words that conveyed the look that she carried. Finally, she broke the silence. I don't know exactly how to say this to you except to tell you the truth. Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Centers in New York City. They're calling it a terrorist attack. She went over to the corner of the classroom where a TV hung and turned it on, and unbeknownst to us as fifth graders, this TV had cable television, which was this awesome thing. And she turned the TV to CNN. And there we sat, these fifth graders, innocent to most of the rest of the evil of the world. We sat there and watched the horror unfold. We watched as the towers collapsed, as another plane crashed into the Pentagon, another into into a field in Pennsylvania. Yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And like me, if you were alive on that day, it's, it's likely that you remember exactly where you were, exactly what you were doing, and exactly who you were with. You know, that those terrorist attacks, as painful and terrible and as evil as they were, had an un unintended consequence for our nation. Something that those terrorists never thought would happen, but those terrible and awful, painful attacks actually united the United States of America. If only for the briefest of moments, through the rubble and the ash and the smoke of those fallen towers, shone a light of people, one that had not been seen, perhaps, in the rest of our country's history. If for only the briefest of moments that pain united a nation in understanding who carried out these attacks and in what needed to happen and trusting who needed to go and take care of it. If for only the briefest of moments people's hearts were united in a common pain and grief and they knew exactly what to do. To pray for all those who lost people, to, to put together their collective resources, be it money or, or donations for food and water or even in some cases boots on the ground to go help at ground zero and clean up. The horrible, evil, painful events, incredibly painful, actually had a positive effect on our nation. If for only the briefest of moments it united us. And our Christian lives can sometimes resemble that. When pain and hardship and evil enter into our lives, it can actually have a positive effect on a Christian. Like a light shining in the dark room, evil and suffering can actually illumine your faith. They can bring it into view. Much like those terrorist attacks on 9-11 brought the, the, 
the nation of the United States together, so evil and terrible and suffering can actually bring a Christian closer to Jesus. I mean, that's what it did for a man named Dan, who for years had stopped going to church, but then all of a sudden became a regular attender again. And do you know why? Because he lost his mother. I mean, that's also what happened for a woman named Sharon, who whose prayer life all of a sudden became alive and vibrant, unlike it had been for the last 20 years. And do you know why that is? Because of the spot they found in her brain. Evil and suffering and hardship, painful as it may be, and make no mistake, it is painful, painful as it may be, can actually have a positive effect on the Christian because it brings your faith into view. It can even revive your faith and certainly bring you closer to Jesus. But as we well know, pain and evil and suffering has a darker, more sinister side. Shortly after 9-11 happened, those attacks happened, the conspiracy theorists and all of their far-flung theories came out of the woodwork, didn't they? And all of a sudden you have them sowing their seeds of doubt and unbelief among a nation who was united, threatening to undo everything that had just happened. Instead of blaming Osama bin Laden and his evil minions, what were they blaming? The U.S. government. Instead of saying it was plane crashes that caused the Twin Towers to fall, it was, it was bombs that were planted in those towers days or even weeks before the attacks ever took place. It was the, the, these terror attacks were a result of a plan laid by the U.S. so George Bush could go and finish what his daddy started 10 years ago. I mean, these conspiracy theorists, they leveraged all of the untold pain and hurt that existed in our country to try to instill doubt and unbelief in everything that they knew to be true. And you recognize, I think, in your Christian life that this is exactly what your sinful nature does. And it doesn't just act like a conspiracy theorist. It, it is a conspiracy theorist. I feel every confidence in saying that. The minute that some sort of pain and suffering enters into your life, that conspiracy theorist of a sinful nature that exists in all of our hearts it goes to work, and it goes to work quickly, trying to cast doubt over everything that you've known to be true, to cast unbelief over everything you, you believe to be true. In fact, our sinful nature is so good at this, so good at this, that the moment that that pain or that evil or that suffering enters into your life, all of a sudden, it's like you've lost your footing. All of a sudden, you're not quite sure which way is up. And doubt and unbelief, they rush in. And so instead of faith growing stronger in the light of suffering and hardship, faith grows weaker. Instead of running toward Jesus, who is the only one who can truly help you, we run further and further away. Instead of believing that Jesus can actually help, we, we begin to question the existence, because of our sinful nature, the existence of an all-powerful God or an all-loving Savior. Our prayers become filled with anger, and we're just not quite sure. We're not quite sure what to believe anymore. Have you ever found yourself stuck there, overshadowed by doubt and unbelief? Found in your heart this mixed bag of doubt and certainty, of faith and unbelief. I think that if a lot of Christians were were asked that question. And given the opportunity to answer, they'd probably say they've been there before. Just like me, and perhaps like you. 
And that's the beauty of what we find in Mark's gospel this morning from Mark chapter 9. Because in that gospel this morning, Mark brings us face to face with these struggles. And he just simply says, stop pretending. Stop pretending that faith is always going to be all rose petals and unicorns, that faith is always going to grow stronger. In fact, he brings us face to face with the ugly reality that when we are faced with evil and suffering, sometimes our faith grows weaker. Sometimes we are instilled with doubt. Sometimes unbelief plagues our faith and we teeter between the two, not sure which way we're going to fall. Mark confronts us with these ugly realities this morning so that finally he can bring us face to face with Jesus, who has the power to overcome all of our doubt and all of our unbelief. That's exactly what he did for that father in our gospel account, isn't it? To those nine disciples, those other nine who are left behind as Jesus traveled up the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John to give this inner circle of his disciples a glimpse of who he really was and what he came to do. To those other nine who are left behind, a father brings a boy. It's a boy who is demon-possessed. The father came to those disciples filled with hope, didn't he? Because he had heard the stories. He knew what those disciples had done that they had cast out demons just like the one his son had. So he brings them to the disciples and places them before them. But the disciples are powerless to do anything. And so the boy suffers. Then the religious leaders argue and the father's faith sinks into frustration. Because what the religious leaders are arguing with the disciples about is not the best care of treatment for for little children like this who are demon-possessed. Instead, they're arguing about nothing other than religion. Whose duty is it? Who has the power to, when can they cast out demons? Because you disciples, you have no power to do that. By the time that Jesus comes down the mountain and asks what they're arguing about, the Father has about had it. Under the heavy load and burden of suffering and pain and evil, his heart is nearly empty of faith. They bring the boy to Jesus, and as if to, to demonstrate its power, the Spirit throws the boy to the ground. It causes him to convulse. It causes him to foam at the mouth. And Jesus looks at the father. How long? How long have you been like, has he been like this? The father unveils the boy's story since childhood. He's not been able to speak. He's not been able to hear. And more often than not, the spirit, he grabs him and tries to throw him in the water to drown him or into the fire to burn him. The spirit always has one goal, to kill and to kill and to kill. This one spirit that robbed a little boy of the joy of childhood and replaced it with suffering. This one spirit robbed a father of the joy of fatherhood and replaced it with fear. It robbed the father's faith of its power and replaced it with what seemed to be, what seemed to be foolish. But, but deep in the recesses of that father's heart, he reaches down and, and, and gives one more plea, some sort of last-ditch effort, a, a combination of doubt and certainty of faith and unbelief. Jesus, if you can, Have pity on us and help us. If you can. I mean, how often aren't those words of that faltering father found on the the lips of Christians who are in the midst of, of dire need and suffering? 
big or small. If you can, Jesus, give me a favorable diagnosis. If you can, Jesus, take away the pain. If you can, Jesus, make the hurt go away. If you can. If you can. Now, through our God-given faith, we know who Jesus is. We have an understanding, albeit a, a veiled understanding, but an understanding nonetheless of the kind of power that Jesus contains. We understand the depth, the depths that Jesus was willing to go to demonstrate his love for us, right? All the way to death itself. We know all of this. And yet from the lips of faithful Christians are uttered prayers like the faltering father. If you can, Jesus. And do you know why even the most faithful of Christians in the midst of pain and suffering utter prayers like that? It's doubt. Maybe you, like the father, that faltering father who had a child suffering from demon possession since the time he was probably born, maybe the problem that you're going through is too big or too hard or it's been going on so long that you can't see the other side or even remember what it was like before, so you pray, if you can, Jesus. Maybe like the faltering father, you go to those closest to Jesus for help, like the church or other Christians, but no immediate help is found, no solution is given. If you can, Jesus. Maybe like the father, you go, you'd go directly to Jesus and you pray, but the solution that he gives you, the fix to your problem, it's not necessarily what you had in mind. And then the doubt sets in. And when, well, when doubt sets into your heart, its ugly partner unbelief is not far behind. And your conspiracy theorist of a sinful nature is trying to even instill even deeper in your heart this mixed bag of faith and doubt, of, of, of certainty and unbelief. And like the Father, you still cling to Jesus. But it's this half-hearted, inadequate, apprehensive kind of clinging Jesus, if you can, help us. When Jesus hears these words from the Father, he's incredibly troubled. More troubled than he is when he's looking at that demon-possessed boy writhing around at his feet. He's troubled because he sees a father whose, whose faith is falling away. Jesus is just as troubled when, when Christians like you and me utter prayers just like he did. If you can, Jesus. And Jesus' response to him and his response to us is the exact same. What Jesus does is he throws that question right back in our faces. If I can? Jesus needs to do that so he can show us the ugliness of our doubt, the, the harshness of our unbelief. For one reason and one reason alone, he does this. We need to be brought face to face with these things because it's only when we're brought face to face with those ugly realities that we can be brought to stand face to face with the saving grace and power of our Savior, which actually overcomes all of our doubts and our unbelief. If I can, Jesus says to the Father, everything is possible for the one who believes in me. And then utters another plea deep from the heart of this Father, this time not for the boy though, but, but for his own faith. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus rebukes that, that demon. And he casts it out and it shrieks and goes away, never to enter that boy again. But after years of terrible torment and suffering and pain, this boy looks so much like a corpse that 
that everyone thinks he's dead. But Jesus reaches down his hand, and he pulls the boy up. He's alive and well, and the prayer is answered, and the father's faith is strengthened. The beauty of what we find in Mark chapter 9 this morning is not so much found in the care that Jesus provides for this little boy, but it's rather found in what he does for that faltering father. That father whose heart is nearly empty of faith, that father who is who's kind of going to Jesus as a last-ditch effort to try to help. Jesus comes to him, and he holds on. And what Mark shows us is that Jesus is a kind of Savior who came into this world not, for, not just for people who have a strong faith, who aren't necessarily struggling, so the, he, but he, necess- he did that. Jesus came into this world. He came into this world to hold on to people like you and me who are prone to, to have a faith that falters, who are prone to have a faith that is in danger of falling away. Jesus comes to us in the midst of our doubt and our unbelief, and he replaces those two powerful tendencies with his own power. And he says, and he says, put your faith in me. Put your faith in me, the one who can do the impossible. Because everything is possible for the one who believes. Isn't that exactly what he told to that father? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus demonstrated the kind of power that replaced the father's unbelief and doubt in casting that demon out of his son. Jesus did what was impossible for the father, for perhaps the mother, the religious leaders, for the disciples. He did what was absolutely impossible for everyone else to do, and he points to himself. He says, believe in me, the one who does the impossible. Not the one who can or maybe but the one who does. Jesus demonstrates his power to us and consequently what it's like to have faith in the one who has absolute power through his death, through his resurrection. Jesus died on a cross for you and me and he was laid in a grave as dead as any other man who came before him or any man to come after him. And the reason he laid in that grave, the reason he died on that cross was to bear all of the sins of all people of all time including our sins of teetering between faith and unbelief, between doubt and certainty. But Jesus did one thing that nobody else could do, what nobody else would do, what nobody else will ever do. He came back. He came back from death, glorious and majestic and powerful. And with that resurrection, he points to himself and says, put your faith, put your faith in the one who can do the impossible. When Jesus rose from that grave, he brought with him forgiveness of sins for all people, including when my heart is stuck in the muck and the mire of doubt and unbelief, he brings forgiveness for that sin too. And when he rose from the grave, he brought with him proof, proof that he is more powerful than any of the evil and the suffering and the hardship that you and I will ever experience in this life. When your faith is in the one, when it is centered in the one who has absolute power to do the impossible, and not just that he can do it, but that he will do it for you, gone are those if-you-can prayers. Gone are those doubts about whether Jesus can help you or will help you or, or if he even loves you anymore. 
and they're replaced by the confidence of knowing that the one who is on your side, the very object of your faith, Jesus, is infinitely powerful than anything else that you will ever struggle with in this life. Everything is possible, Jesus says, for the one who believes in him. And that's not because of the strength with which you believe. It's because of the strength of the one in whom you believe. Because here's the reality. Your God-given faith, no matter how prone it is to to unbelief or disbelief or doubt, your God-given faith is not about how tightly your heart holds on to Jesus. Your God-given faith is about how tightly Jesus holds on to your heart, no matter what you are going through. And even on the days when, when you are struggling with doubt and uncertainty because of pain and evil and suffering that you endure, in a sin-broken world, do you know what Jesus never does to you? He never runs away. He never runs away from you like you are trying to run from him. Instead, like he did for that faltering father, he holds on tightly and he strengthens. He brings you close to him. He restores you. He revives your faith. Even on those days, because I know what it's like to to be a sinner who lives in a world like this. There are going to be days when you struggle with doubt and unbelief. But even on those days, that prayer of the faltering father becomes every Christian's prayer. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That prayer is a prayer not only to Jesus to ask him to strengthen your faith, but it's a prayer that also he would equip your faith. Equip your faith to stand firm against any of the evil that Satan would try to throw at you. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, where he talks about how, how our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against each other, against other human beings. Your battle, it's against Satan. It's against the one who is purely evil. So when you are praying, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, you are asking him to strengthen you not only against doubt and uncertainty that Satan throws at you, but anything, anything that Satan throws at you. And the way he strengthens you is by by putting the armor of God on you. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When you pray that prayer, you are asking Jesus to buckle the, the belt of truth around your waist, which is greater than any of Satan's lies. You're asking him to hang the breastplate of righteousness on your chest, which makes you stand firm in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for you. You are asking him to ready your feet with the gospel of peace, which gives you the confidence to move forward in a world that is evil and broken and racked with sin. You are asking your Savior to, to put on your head the helmet of righteousness and put in your hand the sword of salvation which is the very word of God, the thing that strengthens your faith and guides you through this broken world. And lastly, you're asking him to to hang on your arm the shield of faith, which extinguishes all of the arrows that Satan tries to, to shoot at you. When you pray the prayer, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You know what you are given? Not only strength of faith, but confidence. Confidence of being able to move forward in this world, knowing that no matter what happens to you, you have a Savior on your side who is more powerful than Satan, more powerful than any of his minions, than any of the evil he would try to cast on you. So go out there today with that as your confidence. 
Go out there today knowing that the one who has power is strengthening you and upholding you and defending you and walking with you. And even on days when you doubt that, on days when you might fail to believe it, make the faltering Father's prayer your prayer. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Amen.